This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI and Vivid Learning Systems. This is a special edition of the podcast recorded July 30th, 2020. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Rosen. Jonathan is a certified industrial hygienist and is principal consultant for AJ Rosen and Associates, LLC, providing occupational safety and industrial hygiene services to labor unions, government agencies, and organizations throughout the United States. Jonathan also works for the National Clearinghouse for Worker Safety and Health Training, National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences Worker Education and Training Program. He has served as the director of the Occupational Health and Safety Department for New York State's Public Employees Federation, AFL-CIO, for 22 years. Jonathan has been co-investigator on several federal NIOSH intervention research grants and is joining us from his home today in New York. Welcome to the show, Jonathan, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be a part of it. Hmm. The reason I wanted Jonathan to join us for this special episode is to highlight the critical work Jonathan has been doing since the beginning of our current pandemic. You see, Jonathan is the primary author, subject matter expert, for two critical training courses offered free to anyone through the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, or NIEHS, which is a division of the National Institutes of Health. The courses are titled Protecting Yourself from COVID-19 in the Workplace, General Awareness Training Tool, and the other, Protecting Yourself from COVID-19 in the Workplace, Essential and Returning Workers Training Tool. You may recall, if you're a listener to the podcast regularly, hearing about the first course during episode 54 of this podcast, where Chip Hughes, the director of the NIEHS, shared news of the general awareness tool when it was released. Since we've heard from Chip, Jonathan completed authoring the second course. Jonathan and I met through our joint work in support of the NIEHS for this endeavor. My company, HSI, with Jonathan's help and the collective work of our Learning Solutions team created the online versions of this course, or the courses rather, which again are free to anyone, and we'll share links to the online and the PowerPoint trainers versions in the show notes. It's not very often that we get to hear the backstory to critical training development, yet here we are with you, Jonathan, and I can't wait to have you explain your process, what people will learn from these courses, and yet before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your journey in health and safety that led you to where you are today? Sure, I'd be glad to. I was a child of the 1960s, (laughs) and uh, at that time, there was a lot of uh, protests going on for peace civil rights, workers' rights, and uh, my whole family was uh, kind of swept up in that. Um, mm. My father was an economist who, uh, you know, was uh, trained under the GI Bill. He, you know, he fought against uh, uh, Hitler in World War II, and, uh, you know, my brother and sister and I all got involved in labor unions, and uh I became a a union steward working at a plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Mm -hmm. I I moved to. And uh, I became the chairman of the Union Safety and Health Committee. Hmm. And the plant was A.O. Smith, which made truck and car frames, huge Hmm. complex between 27th and 35th Street in Milwaukee, a really great employer. Uh, At the time I was hired, we made $5 an hour which is probably like $35 an hour or 40 uh, today. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
In fact, my very first job, I was a fire watcher because they had had a fire in the paint tank, and that paid uh, even more than uh, $5 an hour. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I learned a lot about the workplace and workplace safety uh, by being a factory worker and a union uh, activist and a safety committee uh, chairman. And there was a rich history in that plant of, uh, you know, people losing their fingers and their arms. Uh, mm. The story was in the old days, the bus would pull up to the factory gate and the bus driver would say slaughterhouse or butcher shop because so many people lost fingers and arms in the oh. power presses. Wow. And, uh, you know, at one point in the late uh, 1980s, I was full-time for the union uh, on safety and health, and I worked directly with the company safety director and the union president. And mm -hmm. I got access to the company's archives, and they had materials from the 1930s. You know, Joe is a safe worker, and he was holding up his hands, showing that he had all of his fingers. He knows better than to stick his finger in the press was the uh, approach back then. Oh my you gosh. know, today we have all kinds of standards and uh, all kinds of controls to prevent people from losing their fingers and arms in, in such machinery. But uh, that was a great opportunity uh, in the late eighties for me to, you know, dig into that history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you're a certified industrial hygienist, Jonathan. When did that enter your life? Well, when I uh, went to work as a, a full-time safety rep for the union, um, I did that for two years. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the company had a bad quarterly report, and they put me and, and the others who were doing quality and, and other uh you know, supportive activities back on the assembly line. Mm -hmm. And by then I knew I really wanted to do this safety and health work full time. Mm -hmm. So I had started to take college courses and I eventually uh, was able to get an undergraduate degree in science, math and technology. And when they put me back on the line, I started looking for uh, full time work in the labor movement as a safety and health professional. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate to get hired by the New York State Public Employees Federation, even though I didn't have all those credentials. Mm -hmm. So while I was working and raising three children, uh, mm -hmm. I also was able to uh, get a master's degree in industrial health from uh, University of Michigan. And uh, after I completed the master's degree, which was uh, 1993, I uh, got the uh, CIH uh, two years later. Mm -hmm. hmm. Wow, what a journey. Yeah, it was quite a, an incredible experience. And, and I was also fortunate that while I was going to college and getting the academic training, I was also doing the work, you know, in the real world. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a kind of a different perspective you know, on what I was learning and a lot of what I was learning, I was able to immediately apply, but it also gave me the motivation. You know, I really knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was really hungry to get the, uh, the knowledge and the training. Uh, I remember in college, 
I, I would try to read every page of every assignment, <laughs> whereas some of my fellow students, you know, they were just trying to read what they had to to, to get by. But I, I was really thirsting to, to learn as much as I could. So I remember having a medical dictionary uh, <laughs> by my side mm -hmm. and getting up at five in the morning to study before I went into my job at the mm -hmm. Public Employees Federation. Yeah. And so Jonathan, you know, you, you had, you had explained that you'd been working with, with the unions and, um, you know, working at the, at the plant in Milwaukee and, you know, safety was definitely part of all that. At what point in there do you remember thinking, yeah, this is going to be my job. Like I really, really want to work on safety. Was there something that cemented that in your head or was it, or was it just kind of the rich history of your family? Like you talked about, like, it just seemed to like a default. Yeah, so I've always been somebody that was motivated uh, around making the world a better place for humanity. And, you know, and always, you know, my father and my brother and sister always standing up for the underdog. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at the inequalities in our society, rich versus poor, you know, the discrimination against minorities, uh, the treatment of, of immigrants, all of that. It was just our family value is that you should stand up for the underdog, that you should treat everybody. I don't care if they have, you know, a PhD, an MD, or if they're picking up garbage, they deserve your respect for the work that they're mm -hmm. doing. And so mm -hmm. those values, you know, were really strongly uh, a part of my uh, upbringing. Mm -hmm. And when I went to work at the plant and got involved in the union, and got involved in the safety and health, I found that as a way to really make my, my life's work true to those values. And, you know, we're, we're about saving people's lives, keeping them from dying, you know, yeah. keeping them from getting diseased, losing, you know, their fingers. When I was at PEF, one of the biggest hazards was workplace violence in the state institutions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, really anywhere that people were dealing with the public, but especially uh, like the institutions for people with mental illness and the prisons and the youth detention facilities and the the uh, injuries that the workers would experience, the nurses and the, the aides, it was, you know, not only broken bones and, and, and bruised bodies, but they also experienced, you know, terrible psychological trauma, you know, mm -hmm. from those... Uh, uh, experiences of getting beaten up by uh, patients or inmates or, or clients. Mm -hmm. So that became, uh, you know, a big focus of mine when I was at the Public Employees Federation. Yeah, yeah. And Jonathan, how did you come to work with uh, and alongside the NIEHS? How did, how did that come about? Well, you know, when I was, uh, leave, when I was uh, leaving the Public Employees Federation, um, I was, uh, you know, kind of taking advantage of uh, contacting all the uh, people I had worked with um, through the Occupational Safety and Health section of the American Public Health Association, as well as the labor movement. And the American Public Health Association's Occupational Safety and Health section has people from government, academia, labor, and nonprofit organizations. And so 
you know, one of the people I had worked with was uh, Deborah Weinstock, who had been at the uh, National AFL-CIO Health and Safety Department. Mm -hmm. And at the time, uh, Hurricane Sandy had hit. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the uh, National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences Worker Training Program does is they've been very active in disaster, mobilizing grantees to do, you know, worker and community training during disasters to protect workers and community members from uh, injury and illness and, and death when they're responding to these disasters. So yeah. that was a major uh, uh, connection that I made. Uh, you know, through Deborah and Chip Hughes, the director of the NIHS worker mm-hmm. training program, and it kind of evolved from there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, would you mind sharing a little bit about these courses that I talked about in the beginning? Um, you know, who are who are they for, and then um, you know who takes who takes the classes, and then can you explain a little bit about how do you start from scratch? I mean, especially Jonathan, it's a novel virus. No one's ever dealt with this before. Somebody's got to create training and here you are. I mean, what a journey. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, as the, uh, uh, news about the, the virus was, was, uh, you know, coming, I started, uh, collecting, you know, articles and, uh, especially I was looking at the peer-reviewed, you know, literature. Um, I'm on the mailing list for the Journal of the American Medical Association. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm on a, a number of other mailing lists. There's a, uh, the National uh, Committee on Occupational Safety and Health has a extensive mailing list protecting uh, America's workers. And they send around a lot of peer-reviewed and uh, and news articles, so I you know I collect all that information, and I organize it into folders, um, you know around different topics, everything from personal protective equipment to mm-hmm. uh, healthcare workers to essential workers, and uh, so uh, you know I do a lot of that type of basic uh, uh, research, you know, to mm-hmm. get familiar with what's going on, but. I also have a lot of uh, experience with infectious diseases. Mm. When I first got hired by PEF in the in 1990 was when tuberculosis was resurging. Sure. And it was related to uh, HIV, um, people with HIV. And uh, so drug-resistant tuberculosis came on the scene. And it was the people with HIV, their immune system is compromised. So yeah. um, we weren't detecting that they were also infected with uh, some of them with uh, drug-resistant TB. And mm-hmm. in New York State, uh, some of the inmates were taken to a community hospital in New York City and then transferred all over the state to different prisons and hospitals. Oh, no. And so the mm-hmm. uh, TB, the drug-resistant TB was spread all over the prison system and into these hospitals, including state hospitals in which the PEF members worked. Mm-hmm. And one of them in, in upstate New York, 70 workers were infected. Oh, wow. Why? Because the negative pressure isolation room was positively pressurized. 
So okay. the drug resistant, the contaminated air with mm-hmm. drug resistant TB was literally being blown out of the room, down the hall, and it infected 70 workers and two patients, and there were some fatalities. And then some of the fatalities went to the uh, morgue, and some of the morgue workers, when they were uh, carving into the cadavers to do the autopsies, they got infected. Mm -hmm. And that led NIOSH to evaluate the safety and health of the people doing the autopsies and coming up with standards for ventilation and other control measures. And that was just one, the very first infectious disease experience I had. There was also uh, the effort by uh, President Bush to uh, get everybody vaccinated against smallpox, which we mobilized against because uh, that was you know, not a good uh, approach to protecting people, it was putting people at risk because mm-hmm. that was a live virus vaccine that could cause serious health effects and, and even death. And the only smallpox, you know, in, in the world is in the CDC's freezer and in Russia's freezer. Oh, and wow. so some people feel that that should be um, eliminated. Right. But uh, some people are saying, well, we've got to keep it for research purposes or in case it gets in the hands of bioterrorists. So uh, that was a big campaign. Then we had uh, H1N1, we had H5N1, we had uh, SARS-1, which was very relevant to uh, SARS-2. And I actually saved all those folders with all those PDF files from (laughs) SARS-1. And, you know, one of the ironic things is the recommendations to protect workers for SARS-1 were much better than what we're getting for SARS-2 from both the WHO and the Centers for Disease Control. And, Why do you think that is, Jonathan? Well, I think it has to do with uh, you know the shortage of PPE and respirators, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the decisions are based on the sh- uh, shortage of the supply rather than what's best for the workers. But Going back to the TB days, there was always a bit of a a debate between industrial hygiene, occupational safety and health, and infection control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Occupational health is more focused on exposure prevention, Mm -hmm. whereas uh, infection control is break the chain of uh, transmission. And I've always felt that we should take the best of all disciplines and merge them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I like working with people from different disciplines mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, learning from them and adapting their good practices and, and getting them to adapt mine. But instead, there's there's been a historical clash about uh, these things. And so industrial hygiene is really the experts on, um, you know, inhalation and aerosols and respiratory protection. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there's just been a big un- misunderstanding uh, by some uh, medical personnel and in- infection control personnel on the uh, characteristics of aerosols and particles. And, uh, you know, a particle is a particle and a filter that can filter out submicron particles 
it doesn't care if it's asbestos or SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to, you know, basically do the same uh, thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, in healthcare, we've always advocated that there should be a combination of control measures, ventilation, like the negative pressure, filtration, exhaust the air to the mm-hmm. outside, um, maybe use uh, upper room ultraviolet irradiation. But on top of that, respiratory protection for the healthcare workers and limit the number of workers that go in the room, that type of thing. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I've had all of that experience. We, we also were involved heavily around issues of bloodborne pathogens, uh, HIV, hepatitis B, C, mm-hmm. D, et cetera. And, uh, and so... Uh, did a lot to uh, support injured workers and workers who were exposed. And uh, working with the union, a lot of advocacy as well as research, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, and so I, I was able to bring all of those experiences and skill sets to the project of developing the curricula on uh, you know, the awareness training and then the essential worker training. And the mm-hmm. other big um, skill set is adult training methodology and techniques. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother uh, kind of science or art and art. Yeah, and that's, that's one, of the, one of the things I like about safety and health is I've always felt it was a mixture of science and art because mm-hmm. you can be creative with it, you know? You sure can. I mm-hmm. mean, look at what Vivid does, you know, with the uh, all the... Uh, what I call the bells and whistles, you know, it's, it's like playing a video game. It's fun, you know? And yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Jonathan's referring to the, uh, the uh, learning solutions team and the instructional designers that took, took your work and research and, and uh, used all those adult training methodologies and techniques you just referred to, to make uh, engaging, memorable learning experience. And we Mm -hmm. know, we know some adult learners are more visual some are more looking at numbers some are looking at logic you know some want uh, statistics um you know some are motivated by emotion so you know as a uh, curriculum developer and designer you kind of want to hit on all of those different uh, approaches and uh, you know you also because of the nature of what we're doing um you know, we're creating a tool that can be modified and ad- adapted to multiple industries and and populations. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, we try to aim for about an eighth grade level, you know, mm-hmm. and we try to keep it simple. We want it to be visual, stimulating, and very interactive. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people tune out after about six minutes of lecture, I, I, I understand. So small group activities, we do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And the theory there is that uh, adults have a lot of knowledge and experience to bring to the table. So uh, if you can get them active in sharing their knowledge and experience, it'll be much richer than if the uh, trainer is the sole source of expertise and information. Right, right. So Jonathan, can you explain um, a little bit about the difference between the two courses? 
you know, as you as you created them and kind of who those audiences are, and you're they're saying you're saying that you design them. It sounds like for lots of audiences, but can you d- describe those two courses a bit? Yeah, they're both awareness level, meaning that um, if a company or an organization is going to use them for their uh, you know company or organizational training, they're going to need to uh, put their specific policies and procedures and and uh, requirements into them mm-hmm. they don't have that mm-hmm. so the first one uh was really going over the basics of you know the characteristics of uh the disease and you know SARS-CoV-2 is the virus COVID-19 is the disease talking about the symptoms uh as we knew knew them how it's transmitted uh, we talked about, there's slides that talked about what was happening worldwide and in the U.S. And those were slides where you could click on a link and update them. Mm-hmm. And um, there was uh, information about how to uh, protect yourself and uh, how to do a basic risk assessment to determine what level of protection is needed. Uh, we talked about some of the OSHA standards that are relevant, like personal protective equipment, respiratory protection, the general duty clause, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. Uh, talked a little bit about disinfection and, and, and cleaning, mm-hmm. but uh, very much on the uh, awareness level, kind mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, the big picture level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other course... Yeah, the other course is geared towards essential and returning workers. Mm-hmm. And even though that is awareness, um, there were uh, a lot more uh, detail about who are the essential workers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we made that one of the training techniques I use is animations where you put the question to the people you're training. And then at the end, after they've given you input, uh, you can click on the uh, slide and it'll give you the uh, uh, summary, which is mainly what they've just uh, uh, shared with you. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Zoom or the virtual world, uh, you get that input either through a chat box or a uh, whiteboard, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, although we we have been able to do small group activities with the Zoom platform and some of the other platforms. But uh, some of the other content differences is uh, a lot about workers' rights, uh, Mm -hmm. right under OSHA, but also uh, issues about right to refuse unsafe work. And in the current environment, uh, people are even complaining to the mayor, the police, or the health department uh, Mm -hmm. because OSHA has not been very active around uh, complaints that they've received. That's right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole uh, section of photographs. Uh, I think this was a kind of a creative technique. It's it's like, what's wrong with this picture? What what's the control measure? So we Mm -hmm. had, you know, I was fortunate. My cousin, who's a uh, at one point was a professional photographer who lives in uh, New York City. um, I called her up and she went around taking pictures of mm-hmm. essential workers. So I've got a photo of a cop with no gloves. 
he's bearded wearing a respirator <laughs> and uh you know um not a, not very well protected if he had to uh you know get within uh, close distance to somebody to do his job there was a taxi mm -hmm. cab driver um and uh i think they were wearing a uh some type of surgical mask mm -hmm. uh and and there were grocery stores and postal workers um my niece who's a nurse uh sent me a picture of what she was wearing mm -hmm. which was a face shield and a procedure mask mm -hmm. uh, now i believe she should have had an, an n95 as a minimum but right. her facility was not providing them and fortunately yeah. she has not been infected and she mm -hmm. has two young children so that's a pretty serious condition she was very nervous about yeah. infecting her family mm -hmm. so i've been mm -hmm. able to kind of uh you know mm -hmm. uh get a lot of support from uh you know friends and family and colleagues sure. and uh and uh I've, I've had the experience of doing this for nihs ever since sandy you know mm -hmm. we we did um mold mucking and gutting and mm -hmm. uh you know hurricane hazards yep. and uh you know, we also developed resilience training for disaster workers, which was funded by the BP oil spill. And yeah. we piloted these courses in Louisiana, New York City, and elsewhere. Uh, United Auto Workers have adopted that program, mm -hmm. which deals with uh, stress and trauma. And, and that's another topic that are covered in the COVID courses, mm -hmm. the mental health effects for essential and returning workers are huge. People mm -hmm. worried about getting infected, infecting their family. You go to the workplace and all the procedures have changed and you've got these new requirements to uh, wear a mask and socially distance. And, you know, maybe you have to, maybe you're a cleaner and you have to do enhanced cleaning and disinfection, but there isn't an increase in the staffing. Um, and actually, some of the training that I've been doing, one of the biggest stresses I'm hearing from rank-and-file workers is the whole issue of masks because it's become political. Um, yeah. You know, who, who enforces it? I mean, that's not the job for the cleaners to do. And right. yet, you know, they I've heard rank-and-file workers tell me about shouting matches you know but you know between workers or workers with customers uh think about uh people working in parks you know where people are partying and congregating you know mm -hmm. that's a high risk you know uh, situation and i think Yours. that's that's spread mm -hmm. a lot of uh covid you know around the country i'm sorry what were you going to say right uh yeah an increase in in workplace violence oh yeah definitely <laughs> you know? Bullying a, and stress, a, yeah. yeah, byproduct of this for sure, for sure. So, Jonathan, the 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 courses that you developed, both of them, are consumable in um, a couple of different ways. And you know, we've we've already talked about the online version, but um, the PowerPoint version. And you were talking about Zoom and other other um, meeting platforms. Can you talk about how trainers are using those? Um, just give a little little glimpse into how that's working with, with the content. Yeah, so 
you know, we do have in both programs um, extensive instructor notes beneath the slides. Mm -hmm. And uh, the instructor notes have a lot of tips on, um, you know, how you can do the training or alternative ways to do it. Um, there is guidance in, the, in there about tailoring it. So tailoring it, if you're training, uh, you know, transportation workers for the MTA, then you're, you're you know, you're not going to be showing pictures of the grocery store. You're yeah. going to be showing pictures, hopefully, of the subway and the bus and getting people to talk about, you know, how to protect themselves uh, uh, in those circumstances. So that would be an example of how people would tailor it. Uh, also, uh, if there is a written policy or procedure, you know, you could incorporate that into the training mm -hmm. is what we would recommend. Yeah, and if yeah. if there's personal protective equipment or respirators or a site-specific cleaning and disinfection policy, all of that could be uh, integrated into the training. And if you're limited on time, if you don't have the full four to six hours that these programs are designed for, then you can uh, reduce the time. For example, we have a fact sheet on the basics about SARS-CoV-2, uh, COVID-19, and you can eliminate, you know, a good 15 slides or so uh, by giving people the fact sheet. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also be creative with the fact sheet and give that to the participants and have them read through it and ask them questions. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19? You know, you can develop different mm -hmm. ways of uh, interacting with the folks that you're training, depending on how much time and what their yeah. their uh, needs are. Yeah, right. So anyone who's listening to this right now, who's a safety and health professional, um, you, you can have access, we'll conclude it in the show notes, to um, the PowerPoint deck that, um, that Jonathan's referring to, along with those instructor notes, as well as a link to the online version, which can be used, um, you know, one person, one computer, or an instructor could use it um, in a group setting as well, and uh, lean into those facilitator notes um, too. So it's um, what we're talking about today is accessible to everyone and anyone, and you know, really encouraging people who, rather than trying to struggle and and do all this research that Jonathan's been talking about, it's already been done for you, and it's accessible for anyone. And the instructor notes also have the references for the research that you know, went into the program. But one thing I've been doing in these Zoom trainings is early on, either through a small group activity or open your mic or a chat box, mm -hmm. asking people, what are your concerns about, you know, COVID-19 as you return to the workplace? And that way, as a trainer, I'm hearing early on what people's concerns are. And that way I can orient myself towards that. And if it means that we kind of get out of order in the training, mm -hmm. that doesn't bother me. Because yeah. to me, having the real interaction that people are tuned into and you're meeting their needs as a trainer, you know, that's more important than sticking to the agenda or sticking to the PowerPoint. 
Yeah, yeah. And Jonathan, as you've been doing this training, and I mean, what a, what a full circle description, you know, you, you, you've authored it, you've written it, developed it, and you're also using it. Um, what are you hearing from people? What are their top concerns about returning to work? Are there are there themes that you're picking up? I mean, I think I can guess, but what are you hearing? You know, a lot of people are planning on reopening and mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out you know, uh, how to function. Yeah. And a lot of the organizations, like I, 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 I was, I had the rich opportunity of working with a community organization mm-hmm. and they literally have hundreds and hundreds of people in their offices every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how do you create social distance? How do you work with the landlord to, adjust the ventilation, all of those are big issues and Mm -hmm. still, um, you know, maintain, you know, the services and the connection with the community that you're serving. So, you know, that's, they were very tuned into the training and we were able to kind of orient it towards that particular need. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's other folks that that I trained that were uh, public employees and they Mm -hmm. brought up about the masks and the bullying and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the uh, lack of staff and resources. Um, there was one fellow who worked for the state labor department who was upset because his computer kept crashing. And uh, he wanted to do a good job of serving the public. And yet the computer that the, that the state provided him kept crashing. So, you mm-hmm. know, those were some of the kinds of issues people were bringing up. Right, right. Hmm. I think you had um, referenced earlier some pilot programming um, with with training that you've maybe done now or in the past. Um, Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, the process that NIHS and the Clearinghouse uses when we develop a training is we have it peer reviewed, uh, usually by other federal agency partners, CDC, NIOSH, OSHA, ASPR, EPA to name mm-hmm. a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also uh, have it peer reviewed by grantees because our grantee community has tremendous expertise. Uh, mm-hmm. We have university and labor-based safety and health professionals, uh, professors, researchers, and mm-hmm. uh, practitioners. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we, we go through a lot of revision before it even gets piloted. Mm-hmm. And then when we pilot it, Um, We do a lot of evaluation. Uh, At the end of the pilot, we get feedback from the participants and we uh, try to note things that we can modify and improve. And then after we've done the piloting, we, uh, and the evaluation, we uh, post it on the Clearinghouse uh, website. And Mm -hmm. I, I think if you type in into Google National clearinghouse for uh, worker safety and health training mm-hmm. that'll get you to that website yes. and uh, actually right on the opening page is a link to the COVID-19 resources right yeah. now yeah and we'll include them in the show notes yeah it's actually a simple URL I'll read it tools.niehs.nih.gov okay backslash WETP 
backslash. Wonderful. Thank you. Hmm. So is that peer review part, is that kind of nerve wracking after you've, you know, poured your heart and soul into all of this research and writing and then to have peers review or what does that feel like for you? No, I mean, I, I, I welcome it because uh, I've always felt that um, teamwork and collaboration, you always get a better product than just doing it on your own. You're bringing mm-hmm. in other people's knowledge, experience, you know, and and so, yeah, there's a little bit of pain. Some of the comments you might not love or you might think are nitpicking. Um, mm-hmm. We always tell people that things like grammar or uh, typesetting don't worry about that. We have a we work with a professional designer. We work mm-hmm. with Vivid. We don't need you to fix the grammar or uh, the layout. But yeah. invariably, people comment on the grammar and the layout. <laughs> so uh, you know, so we uh-huh. triage that. And uh, you know, what we do is we we have a matrix, and we put in all the comments slide by slide, mm-hmm. and uh, and we. Uh, so as we go through the comments, we we document how we resolve them and uh, make the edits and the changes. And and mm-hmm. I, I find that to be a really good process. And uh, it I think it really enriches the uh, end product. Yeah, right, right. So Jonathan, is there is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience about the about the courses or just kind of current state of what you're seeing right now with um, training or the virus um, in your professional view? I just want to emphasize the importance of training. I think mm-hmm. worker training is uh, not always uh, uh, conducted and and it's not understood how valuable it can be. Uh, Take a look at the healthcare industry. They've shifted over the years to video training. So you have a nurse working 12 hours and you, you, you say during your you know, half hour lunch break, watch this video on bloodborne pathogens. Well, you know, you can do some of the training by video, but some of it needs to be interactive, mm-hmm. you know, uh, where you're, you know, if you're training people on things like mental health or resilience, for example, what makes that training dynamic is when people start telling their stories and sharing with you the traumas that they've been through and you know putting the human face on these issues and mm-hmm. i think when it comes to uh covid-19 um you know it's really important that people understand you know why uh it's important to make the changes that we're making in the workplace why why you need to wear a mask why you need to wear a respirator, you know, how you don and doff it so you don't contaminate yourself. Uh, the, the whole issue of how the virus is transmitted, huge, huge mm-hmm. issue. And mm-hmm. if workers don't believe it or don't understand it, they're not going to cooperate. And what I've seen is a lot of employers, a lot of government officials, and even a lot of safety and health professionals tend to blame the worker for not complying. <laughs> but then has that worker really been given rich yeah. training and education so that they understand why they need to? A, a good example is respiratory protection in healthcare. You know, mm-hmm. the OSHA standard requires training, but 
most of the training programs that are provided in healthcare are like 15 minute uh, added on to a fit testing uh, mm-hmm. effort or, a, mm-hmm. or a, a 15 minute video. To me, that's totally inadequate when you're talking about protecting somebody from a potentially you know, deadly disease like Ebola or a uh, disease like drug resistant TB. You know, uh, I think about, you know, Laura Hopkins and I have permission to use her name. She was a PEF member and a nurse and she was infected in that incident I talked about at the beginning of the program and Mm -hmm. out of work for two and a half years and had to be flown from upstate New York to the Denver uh, Jewish Respiratory Hospital to have part of her lung removed. Mm -hmm. And uh, her family wouldn't uh, see her because they were afraid. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think if if we value workers and we really respect workers, then we will uh, take the time to give them meaningful uh, and appropriate uh, and interactive and training uh, that'll really, uh, I think that'll make a huge, huge difference. And I think the NIHS uh, materials and also the materials of all the grantees are a really rich resource that the listeners to this show should tap into. Yeah, I agree. And and I will include all of those in the show notes. So everyone who's listening, be sure to check those out so you can go to the resources that Jonathan's talking about. There's also um, a list on the Clearinghouse website of all the grantees. And if you go to, the, if you look up their website, you can mm-hmm. see the programs that they offer. Some of it is, you know, because of the federal funding, it's, it's either free or very cheap. Uh, right. The mainstay is HAZWOPER training uh, and uh, hazardous materials training and OSHA uh, training and confined space, mm-hmm. things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, they've ventured into resilience and opioids and, and now uh, infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fabulous, Jonathan. Thank you so much for sharing. First of all, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you for having that mind that got up at 530 in the morning and wanted to read through all those journals. I think you set yourself up well for what you've been doing in support of the worker training program all these years. Um, it's, it's incredible work and it's so important. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for thanking me. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. And I hope people take advantage of the training that, that you've created in partnership with, uh, with everyone else. Dear podcast listeners, a special note for this episode, which I recorded after Jonathan and I ended our recording session. Since early March, the NIEHS has held weekly and sometimes twice weekly workshops sharing information training, and stories from researchers, scientists, hospitals, unions, health and safety experts from all over the United States. They are sharing information for all of us as we learn more and more about this novel virus and how we can protect the workforce. The workshops are chocked full of intense critical information. The recordings of those workshops are also available to you, and I'll share them with you in the show notes of this episode. At the end of the workshops each week, we have a moment of reflection and calm. We are all, all of us, everyone listening now, working our hearts out to keep our workforce protected. And we're all tired, and I bet you are too. 
And it's important that we spend some time renewing so that we can each keep going. So to that end, the weekly NIEHS workshops end every session with a guided meditation and sometimes a song. Imagine that. On one particular day, Jonathan and Annie, who is Jonathan's wife, ended our workshop with a song. After Jonathan and I ended the recording of this particular session, he and Annie sang into my ears the same song that they had performed weeks earlier in one of the workshops to remind us that we're all in this together. So Jonathan left the recording, picked up his guitar, and he and Annie sang John Lennon's Imagine. It was a beautiful gift that required me to use three tissues. <laughs> I wish I could share it with you. However, copyright laws being what they are, and appropriately so, we can't. So I encourage you, however, to take a moment of stillness now, after you're finished listening here, and perhaps search for Lennon's song, Imagine, and listen to it, and let yourself regenerate for just a moment, and imagine all the people sharing in this together. So thank you. Thank you all for what you're doing. And until next time, thanks for listening.